Doesn't eagle feel when he's flying that his way of living is dying? Does he wish that western wind would blow him far away? Good morning, good morning, good morning. Wilder Blue kicking things off for us on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you as always. Thank you, thank you, thank you for dropping by this week. I appreciate each and every one of you. I know we've got busy schedules, so it means a lot that you uh, have chosen to share a little bit of your time with me. Maybe you're on the road to the turkey woods. Maybe you're heading to the lake to chase those big old slabs, those crappie. I've been getting a lot of pictures of people uh, with nice lights. Isn't that what they call them in Louisiana? <laughs> uh, but yeah, the crappie spawn is on like Donkey Kong. And y'all know, I've said it before, nothing beats a fried crappie taco. Uh, as far as freshwater fish are concerned anyway. Um, but yeah, we had a great turkey hunt. Down in Willisee County, Texas last week, my buddy Chisholm Cook, uh, he goes by at Devoted Archer and myself, meet, we meet down there and hunt with Lyndall Laxton of L&L Hunting Services, and basically he just has the turkeys and he lets us, he turns us loose, man. Wow. The turkeys, to say that they played ball would be a gross understatement. I doubled up the first evening. The next morning, Chisholm shot a uh, beautiful 11-inch bearded tom. And and there were seven toms to choose from, so it was uh you'll have to see the footage. I'm gonna put it out on my social media outlets this week, but it was incredible to say the least. Can't wait to go back down there. And I believe Lindell does have a few weekday openings left for the season. Um so it's L and L hunting service, I believe, uh, is where you can find Lindell Laxton, our good buddy. And I've no guy hunted with him as well, so uh, give him a ring if you're looking for a last-minute spring turkey hunt. He's got a lot of gobblers. Uh, what are we doing today? Let me tell you. We're going to be joined by two guests, uh, Ford Van Fossen. He is the conservation and content manager over at First Light. And then also Jeremy Romero. He is a regional connectivity coordinator for the National Wildlife Federation. But anyway, Ford drew a coveted Gemsbuck, or in New Mexico, they refer to him as Oryx, but he drew an Oryx tag. Um, and there's a lot of cool history concerning this African antelope that was transplanted to like basically White Sands and the uh, Alamogordo military base there, which essentially is out in the middle of nowhere in the White Sands desert, and they do a lot of military weapons testing. In that region, but these Gimsbuck have been thriving there since, like, I believe the 1960s or something like that. But Jeremy's got all the the historical information to uh, paint a nice backdrop for us. So we'll discuss all of that, uh, how to draw the tag, what the hunt was like, the conditions. Uh, truly, I think, a very unique hunting opportunity that's offered in the lower 48 that not a lot of folks know about. So... We're going to focus on uh, the you know even the caliber that Ford took, why he chose what he chose, 
what first light gear came in handy in this adventure, and then how many days it took him to either seal the deal or, you know, go back to Idaho licking his wounds. <laughs> Uh, but cool stuff, and we'll also find out a little bit about the National uh, Wildlife Federation from Jeremy. So, lots to get into, to say the least. Before we get into all of that, however, a quick giveaway for you today. Mossberg, our good friends, uh, they were nice enough to send over a bunch of Mossberg t-shirts and caps, koozies, sweatshirts. We'll just make it a, a big old prize pack, one of each cap koozie sweatshirt and t-shirt to today's winner uh just email the word let's say oryx just shoot oryx over to lone star outdoor show at gmail.com and you're entered to win the mossberg giveaway all right let's knock out a break we've got a lot to get into and we'll head to new mexico in search of gemsbuck aka oryx after the break on sci's lone star outdoor show Whether you're headed to the lake for crappie, the coast for redfish, or trying to put your tag on that big gobbler this spring, don't let your truck tank your next trip. Third Coast Diesels does it all. From maintenance to repairs to full diesel rebuilds, any accessory on any truck, doesn't matter. They also do lifts, wheels, tires, hell, you name it, Third Coast Diesel does it. Call David Boone at 214-326-1176 or visit thirdcoastdiesels.com. With city life seemingly getting crazier by the minute, the thought of moving out to the country is looking more appealing than ever. And Foster Farm and Ranch has been recognized as one of the nation's top ranch brokerages the past two years. They have listings in 22 counties and counting and are truly a statewide entity. Foster represents buyers and sellers from all walks of life. Farmers, ranchers, hunters, doctors, lawyers, investors, and possibly you. You can find them on Facebook, Foster Farm and Ranch, or Instagram, at Foster Ranch Sales. Of course, fosterfarmandranch.com, the website, or call chat at 8307766375 One of my favorites there from the band of Heathens Shake the Foundation which is what we're all about here on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg Firearms Cable Smith riding shotgun with you as always thanks for dropping by We're about to head over to well I always say New Mexico is my second favorite state uh, that's because I've spent a lot of time there and you know due to its close proximity to Texas uh, some of my my greatest memories spent with my dad and brothers backpacking in the the Sangre de Cristos mountains have occurred um, in what is truly the land of enchantment but we'll head over to an area that I have I've been to but never hunted in here in just a second with Ford Van Fossen of First Light and Jeremy Romero of the National Wildlife Federation. But before we do so, this segment is brought to you by the brand spanking new Obsidian Foundry Pant. 
which just came out this past week. I believe Ford uh, will shed some light on the uh, benefits of that pant. I think it comes with knee pads, guys, which is really cool for any kind of spot and stock hunting where you've got to keep a low profile as you try to sneak in uh, for an ethical kill on an animal. Uh, so before I get ahead of myself, because I personally haven't gotten to uh, try them out yet, but uh, they are available. It's the Obsidian Foundry, the the Foundry being the, the new lineup from First Light. And uh, yeah, you can find the Obsidian Foundry at firstlight.com. First Light, go further, stay longer. With that being said, Ford, Jeremy, thank you guys for making time for us today. It is a pleasure to have you join us. Yes, sir. Thanks for having us on, Cable. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having us on. My pleasure. My pleasure. So, Ford, you've uh, obviously been on the show before, and um, today we're going to talk about something different, though, because you drew an Oryx tag in New Mexico, uh, which I want to hear all about the hunt. But I think it's a it's a cool opportunity uh, to hunt an African species that was brought here. I don't know. I think Jeremy will be able to provide some information on on the history of the Oryx in New Mexico. Uh, but I, I did want to ask you, Ford, mm-hmm. how many years did you, how many years did it take to draw this tag? And if you say one, I'm going to punch you in the kidney. Yeah, that's already, <laughs> that's already been threatened several times. Uh, my coworker or former co once and future coworker, so to speak, Ryan Callahan, um, he was just straight angry, not really like in a jokey way. It was sort of awkward. He was like, uh. just pissed. Uh, because to your point, I did in fact draw the first year I put in. Uh, you suck. No, I mean congratulations. Yeah, well, I think it was particularly a punch in the gut for him because he, when he lived in Idaho, he put in for goat religiously, mountain goat, and I also drew mountain goat the first year I put in. Uh, <laughs> there's a picture I think somewhere on First Light's Instagram that actually captures his reaction, sort of over my shoulder. And again, there's no happiness. I would say. In space. <laughs> It's just straight disappointment, but he got over it. Cause he ultimately actually, he went on that mountain goat hunt with me and helped me pack it out on mm. what is either the worst or second worst pack out of my life. I would say there's guys that put in for these. And was this a once in a lifetime tag you drew? Uh, it was not actually, okay. um, at least that's correct. Right. Jeremy is not once in a lifetime. Right. Yeah. I mean, as a non-resident, your chances of drawing it again are, are, are low, so you can, you know, still draw it again. It's not one of those missile range, missile range hunts, but, you know, to put it in a perspective, I've drawn one Oryx tag as a resident in 10 years, nine years, something like that, maybe a little longer. So oh, wow. it's, uh, it's, it's hard to draw those tags. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, talk a little bit about the history. I understand that they were introduced uh, like in the late sixties, but uh, I'm sure you can provide some more information on that. Yeah. So, you know, uh, diving into that, New Mexico took, uh, they, they kind of took a leap back in the, in the early seventies, late sixties, um, and even into the early eighties where they, you know, they looked at the landscape here in New Mexico at the time. Um, there wasn't a lot of biodiversity on it for, for various reasons, but they, uh, the, the game commission at the time and a particular game commissioner, he, um, you know, had some past, travels overseas and and uh, i think he was uh, i could be wrong but i think he w- was potentially in the armed forces and and through his kind of travels he saw various different species um you know had the opportunity of i think hunting a few um 
so when he came back to New Mexico, he kind of looked at the landscape and looked at it through a lens of how do we increase opportunity from a, from a sporting perspective on this, on this landscape. And, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately kind of came to the conclusion of let's, let's have some conversations about introducing these, these exotic species. So uh, Oryx was one of them. Um, uh, Kudu was also included in the mix. So was Persian Ibex and Siberian Ibex. And so these four exotic species were the, were kind of the, uh, the, the, the guinea pigs, right? The, the test subjects there. And so what's unique about New Mexico is uh, we have a law where you cannot introduce any um, non-native species in, into the landscape, into the, you know, the public, public land. And so when we got these uh, exotic species, they had to be held in, in holding facilities. Some were held in um, what's today known as holding facilities where bighorn sheep are held for reintroduction efforts. But in the past, they were used for exotic species. Um, and they also utilize relationships with the, uh, the Albuquerque Zoo, the local zoo here in the state, to uh, also use their holding pens for, for, for holding species. And so the, the trick was, and, you know, a little caveat here is like, once those, once those species have progeny, those progeny were born on New Mexico soil. So they're technically considered native animals of, of New Mexico. And so those, you know, those second generations or first generations were then, you know, able to be reintroduced or introduced, not reintroduced, introduced into the landscape. Um, and there, you know, started to create these, these huntable populations. So ultimately once they introduced all those, if those four different species, uh, two of them are the ones that really took off the Persian Ibex and the Oryx, um, I think uh, Kudu and and I think Ford actually might know a little bit more more on this, but I think Kudu probably had some uh, um, not so positive interactions with domestic livestock on the landscape, and because of that, weren't uh, weren't able to really take. Um, and then Siberian ibex, you know, took for a little while, but I think with predation and hunting pressure, and uh, they they were quickly um, kind of driven off the landscape there. So we just we just have those two. And the old barberies, right? The barberies teach <laughs> out at. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the, the, the barb came from, you know, Texas. There was also yeah. some, some ranches here in New Mexico where, uh, you know, I think there was some escaped, escaped barbs that were able to get out. So we do have barbs running around. So do you guys all call them Barbary or just call them, we call them all dad. Yeah. Barbs is shorter. I just call okay. them barbs. Yeah. So, I, I think that's interesting. Cable. I noticed that distinction in New Mexico pretty quickly. It's definitely not out at there. It's definitely Barbary sheep or barn, which, and I, you know, and given I, it right next to each other is pretty interesting. And the proclamation, it, it even says Barbary sheep. I don't mm-hmm. think they, they say yeah, it is all dead. And now do you, are those draw tags? I mean, here in Texas, they're invasive. We just, you, you, if you're, if they're on your land, you can shoot them. There's no season. There's no, you know, we treat them like feral hogs. Uh, that that you also can pay four thousand dollars to go. <laughs> yeah, I, rem- I remember discovering that dynamic at Dallas Safari Club a couple years back because I, you know, a cool looking animal. I was kind of poking around on how you could hunt them. Like, well, it's exotic, right? I mean, right. people probably want them gone. It was like, nope. Yeah, they actually will charge you thousands of dollars <laughs> instead. Yeah, in New Mexico, you can you can do both. So there's units where they're draw units draw unit only and then there's over-the-counter opportunities um some of those over-the-counter opportunities can be you know just as good as the draw units but uh yeah we offer both and you know they're still expensive to the non-resident not the four thousand dollars but you know i think it's up there in the the thousand twelve hundred dollar range right right 
a little history while we're talking about the uh, the history of the orcs. The history of the Audad in Texas um, came from World War II uh, soldiers, American soldiers that were stationed in northern Africa, uh, which is where those Audad are, are native to, Barbary sheep. And then uh, they, one way or another, figured out we need to bring these back to Texas after the war ended. And that's uh, that's kind of the origin of, of how those things are now so... Well, they've proliferated a lot of the state from the hill country to West Texas, which I'm sure is how they got into New Mexico. Let's do this. Let's knock out a quick break. We'll come back. I want to hear, uh, Jeremy, a little bit about the National Wildlife Federation. And then, of course, we'll get back into uh, how this orcs hunt played out. That segment brought to you by Vortex Optics. If I'm going on, say, a New Mexico orcs hunt, if I ever draw that tag or if I'm just chasing elk with my bow, whatever the case I'm taking the Vortex Diamondback HD spotting scope with me. I've got the uh, 20 to 60 by 85. Uh, You can get into one of these awesome spotting scopes for less than 600 bucks. You can find the entire lineup at VortexOptics.com. Vortex, the force of optics. We'll be right back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Star Night Vision and Thermal Imaging has been helping hunters light up the night for over a decade now. I've been with them for quite some time. Back in the early days, thermal optics were pretty expensive. You might not realize it, though. The average guy can get into a thermal rifle scope these days very affordably. I've got the Thermion XP50. Absolutely love that scope. It's got a diverse color palette, lots of options to choose from, whether you want white hot, uh, black hot, red hot, you name it. There's tons of options, literally. It's got internal recording as well, and it's got internal and external battery options. So you can hunt all night without having to worry about running out of batteries. You can find the Thermion XP50 as well as their entire lineup of thermal and night vision optics right there at PulsarNV.com. Spawn is right around the corner. Your reels have been re-spooled, and the tackle box is ready to roll. But the question is, can your truck handle another season of pulling your boat in and out of the water every weekend? Call David Boone at Third Coast Diesels. He'll make sure your truck is not what sinks your next fishing trip. Offering a widespread array of diesel parts and services, call 214-326-1176 or visit thirdcoastdiesels.com today. It's gunmetal gray. Gunmetal gray. Gunmetal gray, the name of that one from Chuck Mead, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you as always. Thanks for dropping by as we are visiting with Ford Van Fossen of First Light, as well as Jeremy Romero of the National Wildlife Federation. We're going to continue to find out more about this coveted Oryx tag that Ford drew and the subsequent hunt uh, that they enjoyed in a uniquely beautiful portion of New Mexico, the land of enchantment. One of my favorite places. 
Uh, but before we dive back into that conversation, this segment brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. You know, in addition to their message of uh, conservation, education, and protecting your rights, well, on the protecting your rights front anyway, uh, SCI has a government affairs team right there in Washington, D.C., headed up by our friend Ben Cassidy, and they are on the front lines fighting to protect you and I's rights as hunters and conservationists. So to join in that effort and join our ranks as Safari Club members, check us out at safariclub.org. All right, with that being said, uh, Ford, Jeremy, thanks for sticking around. I I think at this point, though, Jeremy, it's important that we kind of hit on uh, your job at the National Wildlife Federation because I'm not sure that all of our listeners are familiar with the great work that you guys do. You know, professionally, I'm, I'm the regional connectivity coordinator for the National Wildlife Federation. I uh, work with many other organizations and, and stakeholders to uh, promote, enhance, and, and protect and prioritize wildlife corridors and connectivity um, for various wildlife species across the West. Um, you know, we don't have to get all too into that, but it's a, it's a pretty unique position that allows me to advocate for various conservation efforts um, while also at the same time um, advocate for for sporting related issues, um, you know, National Wildlife Federation is a is a excuse me there. National Wildlife Federation is a very strong uh, sporting organization, and so you know a lot of my opportunity and ability through my work is advocating for for sporting rights, continuing you know being able to hunt and fish and protect that right for future future generations. So it allows me to you know really. Uh, meet some awesome individuals and get to know some really, really cool folks. And through that role and through just my personal passion as a sportsman and conservationist, you know, I've been able to, to meet Ford and many other cool individuals. And, um, you know, when, when Ford drew that Oryx tag, uh, I damn near invited myself. <laughs> right on. Okay. So that's cool. Well, we certainly appreciate you jumping on and I'm, I know, uh, Ford appreciates you. Who doesn't want a buddy to help pack out an animal, right. Or, or someone that is, um familiar with the the region i know uh, ford you probably hadn't ever been to that part of new mexico uh not at all i'd never been to the desert southwest period um so really i mean a lot of a lot of what i so enjoyed on the trip was getting down there you know hanging out with jeremy and uh and ray and and kind of getting to know new mexico and i actually also had a buddy from college we were able to connect with down there um fellow named Jeb Norton out of Santa Fe and he came down for a little so yeah just hanging out with those guys and you know talking about chilies and and the desert and jackrabbits and quail and just yeah getting a piece of it I mean that was really I think a lot of what I enjoyed about the trip even even outside of the actual hunting well I I haven't been there in quite some time we went on a a family vacation and I've spent a lot of time in New Mexico Uh, Jeremy and I were talking about it um off the air uh new mexico is like my second my adopted home state uh spent literally months of my life there uh but i went to uh white sands as a kid and uh and then we did like the carlsbad cavern deal and uh it's just wonderful family trip highly recommended if you've got young kids um because it's something that left an impression on me as a probably a sixth grade kid right go to white sands it's like something i've never seen in the world 
we did like i guess a lot of people sled there it's like you're sledding down the sand dunes we did that i uh, went to the alamogordo uh missile base military base there um so so with that like uh brief description that i've given jeremy talk about that area uh, and why it is so suitable for for oryx or well i always call them gemsbuck because that's what they you know they call them in uh in South Africa or Africa, or they even say, they say Hemsbuck. Um, oh, yeah. but, but we've dropped that. We just say orcs. The, the weird thing is there's other types of orc species. So, um, it's just really more of a, like a, a broad description of them. Well, you know, it's, it's good that you bring up white sands missile range. Cause that really kind of lays the context where, uh, these, these animals live. So when, when they introduced the oryx back in the seventies, they introduced them on white sands missile range. You know, you were describing white sand dunes, you know, mm-hmm. thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of acres of this white sand dune where these where these oryx were introduced. And, you know, the idea was let's introduce them in an area that's, you know, as, as closely similar to their native habitat as we can. And that white sands missile range was was it, you know, over years, obviously, the landscapes uh, transitioned a little bit. But, um, you know, it's a it's a dry, arid desert. You know, everything there is it's it's not too different from West Texas. You know, you got Ocotillo, you got Mesquite, you got Creosote, you know, you got uh, Chamisa, you got tons of plants and, and, you know, that just want to poke you. There's very limited water. So it's, it's such a, you know, it's like a scene out of Mad Max is what Ford and I would, would describe it as. It's just, yeah. Yeah, man. I I mean, just not to cut you off, Jeremy, but like my first reaction getting down there and, you know, especially when we hit some of that red sand and the, you know, the dune or smaller dunes that would form around the mesquite. I mean, it was just so much like Africa, you know, and and I've been fortunate enough to spend some time in South Africa and Tanzania in my past. And, and it was, it's almost the, it's an uncanny resemblance really to you know, areas of sub-Saharan Africa and, and the fit there, you know, and I think another way to put it when, you know, I'm looking at Google images of Oryx trying to get a feel for sizing and where to shoot these things and all that good stuff. You look at the pictures and it takes a second to, to see, you know, to, to see for yourself, whether it's in New Mexico or in Africa, right? Because mm-hmm. right. you've got an Oryx on the ground and it's lying in some some red dust and there's a spiny ass plant behind it. And it's like, could be Namibia, could be New Mexico. I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, and with, with that Ford, it's like, you know, the Oryx, when they introduced them here in New Mexico, it, you couldn't have found a better landscape to, to really do it. I mean, these animals, I, I, I've never been to, to Africa like Ford has, but I would say they blend in and disappear oh, yeah. in this landscape just as well, if not better than their native landscape. I mean, it's amazing. Even with that black and white face, you think you could, you know, see that thing from a mile away, which in some instances you can, but uh, just the slightest angle change and, uh, you know, they, they disappear. You just, oh. You're sitting there staring at it and it's there, but it's not. And then it looks and you've been staring at it for the last 10 minutes. Absolutely. It reminded me of what, you know, here in Idaho, mule deer are kind of the perfect color often by the time you get around chasing them in October, November, what have you, that gray that just matches the sage and the ground and whatnot. And, you know, I often catch myself remarking like, man, they're made for this, you know, and with Oryx, they obviously weren't made from New Mexico, but, (laughs) but you're sitting down there and, and I feel like that brush, that mesquite, 
um, I guess largely mesquite is, is that color. It kind of does get that purple gray hue as it, as you look out over it. And as, as you start to look further and further and it blends together and it does feel like they kind of, uh, they take on that purple gray hue and they definitely don't pop. I wouldn't say necessarily. Yeah. Uh, that's for, that's for sure. <laughs> so it's very much like their native, uh, Southern Africa, the Kalahari Desert. We talked a little bit about the the history of the uh, the Gimsbuck, the Oryx in New Mexico. It was uh, Jeremy provided some insight there, introduced in the '60s through '70s. I think it was like 95 animals, uh, Jeremy. But I read that there's like 3,000 uh, now. Is that is that close to accurate? Yeah, I've seen estimates. They they say between four and six thousand. Oh wow! Um, and that's and that's both on range and off range, right? So, uh, on range, and we'll qu- quickly clarify that is just yeah. you know on range is where those are considered for the most part once in a lifetime hunting opportunities unless it's a, unless it's a broken horn hunt. Um, but uh, basically, those hunts are done on Department of Defense land, uh, White Sands Missile Range. Um, and those are once in a lifetime hunts. That's where the population of population density of Oryx tends to be the greatest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the off range hunts like the one Ford drew, uh, that was, um, everywhere statewide. That's not department of defense land and white sands missile range, um, areas basically where Oryx have expanded their range beyond the missile range. And the idea is to, you know, decrease that carrying capacity, I think to that 3000 mark that you've been, you've been hearing and that's more or less on range and and off range. Okay. And I guess like controlled hunting is the number one limiting factor on, on these because, you know, in Africa, they're trying to avoid getting eaten by lions and leopards and cheetahs and all these megafauna predator species. I, I assume a cougar could kill one. Um, because if a cougar can kill a bull elk, I would think they could kill a 450 pound orcs. I don't know. I, I, uh, I had a history in wildlife biology world. And so I was nerding out on white papers. Um, you know, the little bit of research that had been done down there. And I believe the one predation study I was looking at had zero confirmed predation of adults by cougars, wow. which is interesting. But when you, I mean, those freaking horns, man, you know, and I do think that they are a species that can wield them, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and what I say, what I mean by that is, I'm, you, Cable, you've hunted bull elk and Jeremy's killed tons of bull elk. You know, bull elk falls over itself to get away from you. You know, they don't really, I don't think, have too much in the way of, a, you know, the ability to sort of use their horns. I'm sure they, they do from time to time. But from what I understand, orcs will pretty much lower those things at a predator. And it better get out of the way because it's, you know, it's a 30 inch dagger essentially on right. top of the head. Um, and so I can, I can sort of understand where maybe the predation, you know, the cougars are like, nah, yeah. I'm going to move on to a dumb mule deer. Thank right. you very much. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of like uh, all the pHs in, in Africa, they use these tiny blood tracking dogs Yeah, go over there and like Jack Russell terriers, other little terrier species, they, they, you know, mix them up, create their yep. own little terrier breed. But, uh, you know, I asked the guys, why don't they use like a respectable, like, why don't you use a bloodhound or something like manly? Uh, <laughs> and they're like, well, those things get killed. All these animals, <laughs> have, like you said, 30 inch daggers on top of their head, all the antelope species. 
and yep. those big dogs are they're a big target uh so that's oh, yeah. why we use these little ones because you know they bounce off of them or they're just a smaller target yeah uh, so so that certainly makes sense from a well you know, and I would add, Cable, and I think I, I told Jeremy and the guys this, but when I was in South Africa, I tagged along on a on a oryx hunt at one point, and uh, buddy buddy killed a put an oryx down, and and we kind of immediately approached. He shot it through the lungs, but it was still alive, you know. Immediately after, and the guide was very serious about keeping your distance, and he snatched up his dogs. And he went on to explain that he had lost one of those to your, you know, fox terriers or whatever those, those dogs are. He had lost one to an Oryx. I mean, it just oh. put a horn straight yeah. through one side and out the other. And that was that. Um, so their ability to swing those things, I think, uh, appears at least to be substantial. Right, right. Okay, well, so I mean, that explains why they don't really have a, any natural predators in New Mexico. Uh, exactly. I'm, uh, obviously, the the calves um, could fall victim to a predator, but adults, yep. not so much. Uh, so back to the controlled hunting, uh, how many tags, Jeremy, would you say are issued annually for, uh, for these hunts? Oh, there's, you know, over, over a thousand tags are, are issued annually for these hunts. Um, and obviously that's done on range, which are once in a lifetime off range, you know, like, like the tag for drew, there were 150 tags for, for that hunt. And you get the whole entire month to do that. I think there's two months out of the year that there are not off range hunts going on, but, uh, on range, I think there's a uh, year round hunts. So they're, they're definitely getting pressured. Um, you, you see a Oryx out in the field. It's <laughs> not stick. It's not sticking around to, to see what you are for oh. a second glance or even a first there. Yeah. I don't think their wariness, man, can be emphasized. Uh, to Jeremy's point, at one point, we came over this knoll uh, and, uh, in, in an area we've been seeing them. We were kind of keeping our eye on, and we came over this knoll. How far were we, Jeremy? A mile? Maybe more? Yeah. Wow. Maybe, maybe more. we come over the knoll in this UTV, and there's two Oryx on the, on the right side of the fence for us to kill them, the wrong side of the fence for them to be safe. And boy, those things saw that UTV from a mile away and took off at a run. I mean, wow. just see you later and duck that fence and ran to safety, basically. I mean, they <laughs> they are uh, they're heads up, heads on yeah. swivel for sure. Yeah, you know, having seen them and I haven't hunted them in Africa. Uh, I actually shot one in Texas years ago, uh, which I was telling Jeremy about, but when you see these animals in Africa going back to that wariness, yeah, they don't stick around like wildebeest. Eh, not yeah. as like, I'm just going to say they're just not as smart uh, because they're getting shot. Uh, but you can get within 500 yards of a wildebeest herd and they just kind of run around and act crazy. They don't run away. Uh, yeah. The, the Gemsbuck, uh, different story. Uh, yeah. So let's knock out a quick break. We'll come back and get into how this hunt played out and some of the gear that was uh, instrumental in, you know, whether or not you ultimately found success for it. That segment brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and the Damn Fish Feeder. You know, whether uh, the fish are spawning or have spawned out in your area, uh, certainly catfish, crappie, and bass are king in Texas uh, rivers, lakes, and stock ponds. But what you do is you keep them fat and happy with the Damn Fish Feeder. You put it on your damn dam. And you feed your damn fish. It's the damn fish feeder, and you can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. We'll be right back. The 
on SEI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. I cut me a cane pole. I'm going catfish fishing. I'm going catfish fishing. A catfish. There's something nostalgic about the old timey general store, and that's exactly what you're going to find in downtown Goldwaith, Texas, at the Mills County General Store. They're licensed FFL with rifle, pistols, and shotguns, ammo gun accessories, hunting accessories, deer, corn, and attractants, sporting goods. They've got a wide array of knives to choose from, plus insulated apparel for both work and camo for hunting season, fishing supplies. They've got foods like anchor tea, grass-fed beef, Dublin sodas, gourmet sauces, and a whole lot more. Also, Ace Hardware. From wall to wall, they have it all. Check it out. The Mills County General Store right there in Goldweight, Texas. Hi, Brett Jepson here with Three Curl Lease Connection. I'd like to invite you to come enjoy some of Texas' best dove hunting just minutes outside of Dallas. We have many private dove leases available for this upcoming season, including milo, wheat, sunflower, and cornfields. Leases come in different sizes and prices so we can fit anyone's budget. We have the lease that's perfect for you and your group. We don't overcrowd multiple groups into one property, and you'll have the first pick at renewing your lease for years to come. Please visit us at threecurl.com and click on leases for your property listings. That's T-H-R-E-E-C-U-R-L.com. Calvary bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you today. Thanks for dropping by as we are still talking New Mexico oryx hunting with, um, I think, what has to be one of the most unique hunting opportunities in the lower 48. I mean, hell, where else can you go and hunt free-ranging African antelope like the Gemspot? Well, we can in New Mexico, and we are visiting with First Light's Ford Van Fossen, who drew one of those sought-after Oryx tags, and also Jeremy Romero of the National Wildlife Federation, who tagged along with Ford on this hunt. And we're going to get into uh, some of the equipment and gear that Ford used throughout this adventure. But first, this segment is... Proudly brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy with locations in Marion and San Antonio, Texas. Josh and Becky Gunther have been taking care of all of my trophy mounts for over a decade. Whether that's a, a Gems Buck, a Mountain Lion, a Trout from the Texas coast, you name it. White-tailed deer, African safaris, they do it all. The work is impeccable and you don't have to wait a year and a half to get your trophy back. You can find them at GR, the number. 8mounts.com. Uh, with that being said, Ford, let's talk about some of the stuff that uh, you and Jeremy used pursuing orcs in the New Mexico desert. So let's start with the optics and what caliber rifle you chose and why. Yeah, man, we had a pile of optics in the, uh, <laughs> in the UTV. It was kind of, we kept joking. There was, you know, 
5,000, 8,000, whatever dollars worth of spotting scopes and binocs and 12 powers and 10 powers. And eight, you know, it was, it was just a pile, you know, at, at points we had five guys and all those guys had pretty good optics more or less. And so, yeah, we had, we had some quite a bit of firepower in the way of, um, in the way of that. And I mean, I think we had everything from 10, I, I had 10 by 42s, um, which is kind of my, my default, and then I think we had everything up to Jeremy's. Your spotter was an 85, right? Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, a, it was an 85. So, and kind of everything between, you know, we had, I think we had some 18 power Binox. Um, we, yeah, of just a pile of, a pile so you're set up for long hours of, of glassing here. Definitely. And definitely expecting, that. expecting that to be the case, Jeremy. Oh yeah. I mean, my eyes still hurt, you know, those, and, I'll, and, I, and I won't take, I won't take up too much time of, of forged gearless here, but you know, having optics is important. You know, you're, you're covering some vast country and uh, you know, to just touch on that a little bit more, you're, you're, you're glassing vast country that gets hot quick and you get a lot of distortion with heat waves. And so you, not only do you have, to, to use quality optics to be able to reach out there, but you also have, you know, very small windows to be able to get, you know, some very, very good glassing time. And, and, uh, that factors in a lot. Yeah. I don't think Absolutely. people think about that, but I certainly have experienced that in Africa before, for sure. Yep. Definitely. It was, it was very similar. And so, yeah, I mean, optics were kind of the name of the game, I would argue, um, in terms of how we were hunting, you know, basically, it in some ways is a road hunt. Um, but you know, certainly not in sort of the easy sense of the word, right. uh, or, uh, or phrase, you know, we, we would essentially kind of drive from either high point or water tank or sort of stopping point to stopping point and get out, get on top of the UTV in most cases, or get up as high as we could and just start scanning, um, in all directions. Um, because it's largely flat, but it also undulates enough that you can lose critters in that, you know, 10 foot roll or whatever up and down. Right. Um, and, and it also really plays, at least for me, it plays tricks on you in terms of, okay, I see something out there, you know, it's either 600 yards or two and a half miles away. I'm not really sure, <laughs> you know, it's just cause it all, it is, that it's depth, very depth perception is really, off yeah. Culture. Yeah, because yeah, in most places that brush is so uniform, um, there aren't really landmarks. You know, I think we often, I often found myself looking up at the mountains in the distance or, you know, even way far off buildings to try and get a line on a critter to get out to them. Um, that, that's definitely a big challenge. And so to your point, it was kind of all about optics in that situation and, and glassing pretty much 360 in a lot of circumstances, just looking for looking for a tail flick, looking for that lateral back, looking for a face. Although I can't actually think of a time I saw that face, even though it's so distinctive. Were there any other ungulates that, that use this terrain? Yeah, for sure. Mule deer, um, okay. at least, uh, we saw, well, Jeremy saw a big buck at one point. Uh -huh. Yeah. We, we saw a real nice big wide frame three by three, but, uh, next to mule deer, there's, you know, it's, it's also pronghorn habitat. I don't okay. think there's a lot, but there's, you know, it's definitely pronghorn habitat, but that's pretty much, pretty much it, man. Yeah. Okay. What rifle did you end up taking? What caliber? 
Because these are, uh, like I said, like a 450-pound animal. They're tough. Big and uh, certainly tough. Um, I used a, a 308, my Tika T3, uh, T3 Lite. Um, I, I wish I had like a sort of scientific bullet nerd reason for that, but the reasoning is largely that that is the only rifle I own and I use it for everything. <laughs> um, and, and I think it wasn't. I don't think it was inappropriate for the job. I mean, Jeremy can speak to that. It's not like you took a 6.5 Creedmoor out there. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, I didn't. Um, but I, I don't know, Jeremy. It feels like maybe Optimum would have been like a 300 quid bag. Well, uh, you know, obviously, well, first and foremost, I think you did it right. You know, you, you shot something that you were comfortable with, um, something that obviously what had enough uh, power behind it to, to harvest that animal. And that's, you know, I think first and, and foremost, right. Is getting something you're, you're comfortable with, uh, out to an, a, a certain distance, you know, and, but, you know, with that being said, like they are tough critters. And so, you know, if you're comfortable shooting those larger calibers or if you can, or if you want to, it's, you know, there's no reason not to, right. Um, I took a friend of mine out, uh, not too long ago, and, uh, we, we were kind of having that discussion as well, right? Like, uh, which, which one do you want to choose? She had a 308 and a seven millimeter with the muzzle brake on it. And they ultimately didn't feel any different, you know, when the, the 308 without a muzzle brake and the seven with, and so she, she chose to shoot the seven, you know, just cause it, it had a little bit more knockdown power. So, you know, obviously I would, I would say you did it right. You, you chose to use what you were comfortable with, but go, you know, doing it again, you know, I'd maybe ask you what, if you would choose a 308 again, or you would try to uh, go for a bigger caliber. I don't think there's a wrong, wrong choice there, but obviously if you're comfortable shooting something with some, some greater knockdown power, that's going to just potentially benefit you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, the comfort factor, I am a believer in shoot what you shoot, shoot what you're comfortable with, but to certainly a little more knockdown, I don't think would have hurt um, in that situation. You know, I think kind of the same, you know, maybe a three, it was a small stretch, but I think it was appropriate overall too. You know, I've seen it's, it's like you said, it's, it's about comfort, how, how well you can place that, that shot placement. Cause I've seen folks, you know, I've seen those animals take a lot of, uh, a lot of impacts from, you know, some high calibers and continue to, to move, act like they've never been, been hit. And then you can, you can have folks who harvest them with 243, you know, they're just well shot placed and, and, uh, gets the job done. So I think that has a lot to do with it. And, and, uh, I, I like to be overgunned and I, I did shoot mine with a seven mag. Uh, this is probably seven, eight years ago. Um, and it, I mean, it did, did the trick perfectly. I didn't have a 300 win mag at the time. Uh, now I do. And that's kind of like, I, when I'm if I even like whitetail hunting here, I just, I don't know, I'm comfortable with it and it, it, uh, it puts the hurting on them. So that's, oh, yeah. too. but there's nothing, and there's nothing wrong with 308. That was the first rifle I ever had was a 308. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's a great caliber. I'm, I'm with you, Cable. And, and I don't, I hesitate to go into calibers in a recorded format because I feel like it's perhaps the most controversial thing I could <laughs> right now, but <laughs> I and These I think I want, it's whatever you could find ammo for, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and that was that was a, that was a bit of a a little bit of a close situation. Luckily, between our office, we had plenty of stuff kicking around, but yeah, not easy to get. But I think I would probably argue, and I feel like I can say this because I shoot a 308, so maybe I won't piss off those people at least. Um, 
I think the 300 is probably the most versatile, you know, big game weapon out there. Um, and, and I don't shoot one largely because I'm sort of the noise gets me. I don't really enjoy shooting them. They're just kind of loud. And that's sort of my tick is, is, is loud, uh, loud gun. So I shoot a 308, but I mean, no question, knockdown versatility across the spectrum of game that a 300's pretty hard to compete with. I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the hunt itself. Like how many days were you planning on being there? How, I mean, how many days did first light say, okay, Ford, you can, yeah. you know, gallivant over to New Mexico and just, yeah. Um, and then, and then how many days did it actually take and talk about like, if you, if you got into animals, if there were any failed stocks, um, did you find a nice bull? Um, you know, all that stuff I want to hear. Yeah. About. So I took off my, my sort of pitch to Bridget to my boss was I'm going to take two weeks off and I'll come back when I fill a tag. Um, there, that kind of got me close to the end of the season, but not to the end of the season time-wise. Um, and so that was sort of the mentality. Um, and it ended up taking, uh, I would say eight slash nine days, uh, okay. to fill, to fill the tag that way. But I mean, I, I what I thought was a really difficult hunt, obviously maybe not physically, but, um, you know, you just have to keep at it yeah. for sure. Well, um, that, that term road hunting is, it, you know, that's kind of a, yeah, it, not a really a fair description. Cause that makes it sound like what an easy hunt, you know, blah, 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 but yeah. it took you nine days to get this. Done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, a road hunt and no a road hunt in that dr- simply driving around. It's funny. We actually did run into some, some older fellas that had drawn tags and they had hunted every day of the season when we ran into them. So ultimately by the time we were finished, I don't, I don't know, Jeremy, they'd been there 25 or 26 days. Wow. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> and they were just driving around in a Jeep, you know? Um, and they had only, when we first talked to them, they had only seen like nine Oryx in 20 some days. And wow. And, and we slowly, as we kind of ran into them a couple more times, I think we perceived that it, their plan was to borderline shoot one from the truck. Basically, <laughs> I mean, they, I don't think were interested in like getting out of the vehicle uh, at all. I mean, maybe to shoot, but yeah. uh, that was their plan. So they were purely road hunting. And, and I would say that that was not working for them right. at all. Um, <laughs> Uh, they had actually, they had purportedly put game cameras out on the road, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, about that. You know, like <laughs> basically, I guess, hoping to figure out when they could sort of proverbially come upon these things in the Jeep. Right. Um, but, you know, with the way they react to cars, it just seems to me that, you know, the odds of that gimme were low especially that gimme with an ethical shot at some sort of reasonable different distance. Um, I, I, I'm not a betting man, but I would wager that they did not fill the tag. If, yeah. if I had <laughs> so they, many, they seem to be enjoying it. So good for them. So did you guys see orcs every day? Uh, I think we, I'm not, I think there might've been Jeremy a couple days where we didn't see them on the right side of the fence. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think we saw, we saw orcs every day. Um, you know, opportunity wise, I think, I don't think until the final, 
the final day you harvested, we have a solid opportunity. You know, it was because we, we were seeing animals. We were, we had, uh, you know, really good opportunities to stock them and, and play a move. But ultimately, you know, it, there was a couple times where absolutely I poked my head up too soon and got us busted or those animals just disappear. And, and we moved a little too far and got busted. And, you know, there's, there's, kind of three things that Oryx don't have going for them, right? It's that black and white face. It's the fact that they swish their tail a lot when they're, when they're just kind of grazing. And they also, when you, when you bust them, they tend to do what pronghorn do. And that's kind of, they run a couple hundred yards, then they'll stop to turn to see what, what it is they're running from. And so if you know that and you're keen to that, then you can, you know, sometimes have an opportunity on that follow-up, but uh, you know, there wasn't one time where we uh, actually had an opportunity to take a shot. You know, there was a few times where it was just, you know, very split second opportunities where, you know, we had to quickly make a move, get the sticks out because a lot of this is eye level. You know, you don't have a lot of terrain and topography to give you those vantage points for, uh, you know, shots where you can get prone or lay down or really right. get comfortable. So a lot of things. I are was going to ask about that. Okay. So it's, yeah. So you're, mostly you're standing to shoot off sticks. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's a team effort, right? Because these yeah. animals disappear so quickly. You have, if you spot them from, you know, the road thing is because that's the only way we can really access a lot of country. And so you spot them usually a mile and a half from the road. Uh, yeah. If you have another person with you, they stay there glassing. Um, to just make sure that that animal doesn't disappear on you. And, you know, Ford and I would take off after, after it, try to, you know, potentially have a good stock and we would get shooting sticks ready. So that way, you know, if we do come up with one, I'll be carrying, I'll be carrying the the shooting sticks and all we got to do is kind of deploy them and, and we're ready to go. It's Ford like a gets... proper uh, African hunt here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. hunting an African species. I wouldn't even, didn't even say that intentionally, but that uh, that's basically like you're describing yeah. Uh, yeah. Any, any African hunt, your pH has the sticks. You're ready to go when he says, all right, you got it. And you don't have a lot of time. It's a quick deal. Yeah. Uh, most of the time. How I mean, really, quick? Go ahead. Ford. Uh, well, I would cable. I mean, that's, that's how I would describe the hunt. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we drove around, we glassed up really far away. You know, at one point, Jeremy, that one stock where we did get the gun up, um, you know, and I don't know, maybe day six or seven or somewhere in there. Um, you mean, hell, that was like two and a half miles from the truck. Uh, I thought, I thought it was only at least seven, 800 yards when we started. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we just kept going and, and the walk back after we blew it, man, it was like, yeah, this oh. is far. <laughs> that's def- that's yeah. the deflating part. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, cable definitely. I mean, that's really, you know, how I'd almost describe the style of the hunting or, you know, the manner that we hunted was really as you would in Africa. I mean, a lot of driving, tons of glassing, a little bit of tracking. We did do some tracking um, because you can, you know, in that, the sand and the dust and the dirt, those tracks do pop pretty, pretty well. And so we did the first day, our our first decent stock, and it was actually the first afternoon or evening, we started on a track and ultimately kind of came around and probably caught that bull. Wouldn't you say it, Jeremy? I think it was probably yeah, I think so. a safe guess that it was the same individual. Um, but boy, got we got to maybe 500 yards on him. And we were kind of watching him through the creosote, you know, pretty, pretty subtle. Um, and we uh, kind of tried to figure a plan and ultimately decided to move forward about 100 yards crawling. And man, I mean, we kind of popped our head up to relocate him. And he was... Just, he just had us pinned. 
I mean, just, you know, we're just staring at horns, staring at us. And we actually, in that circumstance, got the gun up, got the safety off. Um, and really in that moment, he turned and, and ran. Um, I don't want to say, I, I don't want to exaggerate how close we are in that. I don't, if I recall, we didn't really have a sh great shot. He was sort of frontal and we didn't really know the distance, but um how was, far were you prepared to shoot off sticks? Because I think that's something that needs to be yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. talked about here. Like mm -hmm. I'm not really comfortable past 300 yards. No. no. <laughs> and that's a stretch. I want to be 200 yards and in, in like yep. that's where yep. I'm comfortable. I would say, you know, I might've gone to 250 tops. Yeah. Uh, I practiced largely around 200. That off. makes sense. Like 300 off. is stretching it for me. Yep. Yep. Sure. Yeah. Like I said, 250, I might've, I might've squeezed the trigger, but yeah, I would, preference would have been 200 and in. that's kind of where I was putting stuff pretty reasonably off, off a, you know, tripod with a V in it basically. Uh -huh. um, yeah. And okay. uh, so that's what we were looking for. And I don't, did he pop, he might've been further than that on that stock anyhow. Um, and then yeah, he did he, a look. He was far. He, he, was turned, far. he turned to look at maybe, I don't recall 400 or, or so. And, that's, you know, way, it, that's way too far. You're just throwing a hail mary. It's not an ethical shot for me. Sticks, it's just well, me. sticks just no. aren't. You know, it's not the same thing as being prone. Uh, <laughs> no man, it, or having uh, a solid rest where you're actually you've got you you know you're anchored to the ground. Totally. Uh, and when it, it was kind of a rude awakening in January or February, whenever I started kind of getting serious about shooting off sticks and practicing. You no, know, it's a tripod. It's got to be. I'm kind of like, well, this is going to be pretty solid. And I, yeah, right. I put my put my first group down range and was like, oh, this uh, this isn't that solid. Yeah. <laughs> I've got some work to do for sure. Uh huh. Yeah, well, you know, absolutely. that's you know, just building off of that. That's something that you know, I I can really respect. Right, is just knowing that effective range, what you're comfortable with, and you know, staying true to that throughout the hunt. You know, we we had opportunities well beyond that that. Uh, that distance that is sure if we tried to, you know, thread the needle, we could have maybe taken a shot, but, uh, ultimately that's not something you're comfortable with and doing. So, you know, you potentially harm and, uh, wound an animal in an area that's, you know, you're not going to recover it or, or what have you, but, uh, you know, to, to just emphasize that when, when Ford did harvest his Oryx, you know, we were skinning it out and on the, on the right hind quarter, we found a, a bullet that had penetrated the skin about an eighth, I would, I would say about an eighth of an inch, maybe Ford yeah. enough to penetrate yeah. like a cactus needle, but never changed, never deformed, never mushroomed. Uh, yeah. none of that. So actually, we would, I've got it right here. Oh, uh, look at that. That is, that's a little bullet for a big, look, at, look at that. Yeah. yeah so, you know, so it is a little pedal to one side. Um, and yet at Jeremy's point, I mean, we kind of, the initial thought was that somebody had taken a pot shot from a, an obscene distance and the bullet had lost enough kinetic energy that it didn't penetrate. Yeah. But, and I didn't fill you in on this, Jeremy, I should, I talked to my Marine ballistics nerd buddy and his thought is actually that it ricocheted, um, and lost a ton of energy. And then impacted, and maybe that's why it's actually pedaled slightly to one side. If you Interesting. Can yeah. Um, another nerdy ballistics friend thought that perhaps an oryx had been shot. The bullet had penciled through the first oryx, lost a ton of energy, and just barely smacked into a second oryx, which was the one I harvested ultimately. So huh. Huh. mystery remains, but it was pretty wild. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, I mean, either way, that bullet got there because somebody took a bad shot. Of, <laughs> whether it was too far or they shot yeah. through another Oryx, which would be unethical. I mean, that bullet did not belong there one way or the other. I would agree. Probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but so was your tag for any Oryx and what and Jeremy, what is a, a legal Oryx in New Mexico? So honestly, when you when, you know, the tag, uh, the tag forgery, uh, any one Oryx is is legal. So it can have okay. no horns. It could have a broken horn. It could have two full horns. Um, that's all fair game. Uh, on range hunts, same same thing. It's any one Oryx, um, and unless you draw what's called a broken horn hunt. So those ones you can draw year after year. They're not once in a lifetime. I'm almost positive, and uh, those you know are are broken horns. And I, I don't, I don't believe there could be, but there's probably is a a requirement of how much that horn has to be broken, whether it's, you know, 30, 50, 40%, what, what have you. I think, uh, there's probably that, that rule for the broken horn hunts, but for four, for Fords, it was any one Oryx, you know, the first few days you, you know, you would love to harvest an Oryx with, with uh, two full horns, but you also don't want to be picky, right? It's a, it's a great opportunity and meat is meat at the end of the day. You don't eat the horns. So, uh, you know, you, you just you hunt for an opportunity, and that's really yeah. what we did. Oh, yeah. Well, I think the longer the hunt goes on, uh, for for me personally, like I go when I come hunt um, elk in New Mexico, Jeremy, I like I start off the week. I'm like I'm shooting the I'm only shooting a five by five or better. By like day five, I'm like eh, I might shoot a four by four. Last day, uh, what's the legal bull here? <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah. I think I had like maybe like maybe a day, maybe only several hours of like, Oh, we'll shoot like a, you know, let's try and shoot a, a mature bull or what have you. I would say yeah. that very quickly turned into an Oryx that is in range uh, <laughs> pretty quickly. We'll put a nice little bow on this conversation after the break, figure out how Ford and Jeremy eventually did get on that Oryx and uh, whether it was a nice bull, a broken horn, a cow, whatever, like you said, just an Oryx. <laughs> that segment brought to you by Big and J. If you haven't tried Big and J squared, you need to. It's what I put out all whitetail season. Brought in a well, what I what I consider a trophy, a nice eleven point buck. Henry put the Big and J out the day before, and that next morning, Big Boy couldn't help himself. He was in the blind with me when I took him, which made it all the more special to have that father and son memory to last a lifetime. You can find Big and Jay's entire lineup of whitetail attractants at BigandJay.com. We'll wrap up this tale from the land of enchantment after the break on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hey guys, Cable here for Quiet Cat, the leader in e-bikes made specifically for overlanding, hunting, fishing, and remote access to the great outdoors. Quiet Cat provides outdoor enthusiasts a means of portable, low-impact transportation while providing you with the most reliable product on the market. I own a Quiet Cat, and it has surpassed all my expectations. It's an amazing machine that stealthily gets me wherever the hunting or fishing adventure takes me. Based out of Eagle, Colorado, Quiet Cat is able to put all of their products to the test, making sure your e-bike is built to last. Visit QuietCat.com or call 970-328-2399 for more info. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. 
Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Hi, this is James McMurtry. Thank you for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Honey, don't you be yelling at me when I'm cleaning my gun. I'll wash the blood off the tailgate when deer season's done. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody back to SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, Copper Canteen, one of my favorites from the great James McMurtry. Thank you so much for being here today as we're about to uh, wrap things up from the land of enchantment with Ford Van Fossen of First Light and Jeremy Romero of the National Wildlife Federation. But before we dive back into uh, Ford's good fortune of drawing a coveted New Mexico Oryx tag, this segment of the show proudly brought to you by Stealth Cam and the new, well, it's been around for a few months now, but the Fusion wireless trail camera, it is affordable, first of all. You can get into one for like $175, a far cry from the days when they used to be 400 bucks. Also, data plans as little as $5. You're going to get an HD quality image sent right to your app on your cell phone. You're going to know what's coming in and... You're going to be able to use it as a management tool and to pattern animals. It's great. It's the Fusion. You can find it at StealthCam.com. All right. Well, getting back into things here with Ford and Jeremy, let's talk about the ninth and final day when things finally came together, Ford. Yeah. Well, and the weather, you know, I guess, and this is sort of a desert feature, but the weather was a bit all over the place. Uh, You know, I, certainly more temperate than what, it, you know, these summer hunts that people do for Oryx um, that Jeremy's participated in where it might be hundred degrees or 110 degrees for that matter. But, you know, it was, it was a bit all over the book. It, you know, it, it frosted several nights, um, but it also probably hit what 75 Jeremy on a day or two. Yeah. It would have those swings. Yeah. And baking sun, um, right. very intense sun, you know, again, sort of reminiscent of, of Africa, I would say that way. Um, so it was kind of up and down in terms of gear. Uh, but really, honestly, I, I, I more or less wore um, the kit I would wear for September elk hunts, you know, because okay. you're dealing with that same swing, right, in the mountains often from 25 to, to 75 uh, in September in Idaho and, and probably other places you hunt elk and mountains. Um, so, you know, a real light base layer, a wick hoodie, which is great to keep the sun off you and keep the sun off your hands because definitely staying out of the sun was a, was at play, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, then our kiln hoodie, which is our 250 Merino X, just kind of do it all base layer slash mid layer. Um, our catalyst vest just as a bit of an insulator. Our Uncompagre puffy uh, jacket, which is our bring everywhere um, lightweight puffy. That's that also way. my that's also my pillow when I'm elk hunting. <laughs> yep, yep. Good shooting bag. I mean, it's yeah. just uh, it's a workhorse. I'll be bringing it for this turkey hunt. You know, it, yeah. it kind of comes everywhere with me. Um, and then, uh, sort of below the belt, standard wick boxers. Um, our new uh, catalyst, or excuse me, corgit foundry pant, which is part of okay. our new foundry series. Uh, yeah. Kind of the armored bells and whistles version of our corgit pants. So. 
side vents, knee pads, um, waterproof and brushproof knees and seat. Um, those, those will be coming out here in just a bit. We're stoked to get those out into the world. And, um, and that was most of it. I mean, I did bring puffy pants and I wore them at camp a bit because it, you know, if it dropped uh, 30 or whatever in the morning or the evening, yeah. um, I was in those and, you know, obviously a beanie and I think just our shale, largely our shale hybrid gloves, which are another kind of do it all workhorse type piece that way. And that was, that was the long and short of it. Yeah. Or the only the only other thing I would add is I I rocked the the brush pants for a while. Oh yeah, the you know just because the the saw bucks, yeah, just yeah, there's so much mesquite and and you know things that are poking you and trying to stab oh. you. Like, yeah. You have a lot great. <laughs> you have a lot higher level of confidence when you see a you know little stand of mesquite and you're wearing those brush pants. You kind of just bulldoze through. Those Not are great for it. South Texas as well. Um, man, everything can poke you down there. So, oh yeah, but I, you know, the, those knee pads, the the foundries were they're they're pretty cool. You know, there's multiple times as Ford was describing, we were crawling on our hands and knees, you know, trying to get a good stock, and I just in the back of my head being like, you know, my knees hurt, but uh, I'm sure I'm sure Fords don't. <laughs> I'll, I'll be sending Jeremy a pair of those. I'm gonna have Kevin to send me a pair here too. Yeah, the, so, the thorns I will say were impressive. You know, obviously, y'all are both native to the native range of the mesquite and and, uh, and its its buddies out there. But I mean, the amount of thorns that penetrated my boots, I just found like disconcerting. You know, like <laughs> you're walking, and Jeremy called them ticklers. You're walking, you step, and all of a sudden, you know, a three inch thorn is like into your the arch of your heel, um, yeah. straight through my Solomons, like no problem. Yeah. Um, and you kind of, after, even after a day, you turn your boots over and there's a dozen thorns that are embedded, you know, sort of to the hilt and broken off, um, throughout the boot. So yeah, those things are impressive. And it's not so much the ones that are on the plants. It's like the little twiggy ones that are just sitting on the ground that you got to worry about. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, they have mesquite trees in South Africa that, you know, you're getting ready to get prone and next thing you're digging a oh. three inch thorn out of your elbow or yep. you, you sit down and it's now it's sticking you in the ass. It's fun. Good stuff. Oh yeah. And I got it. I got it. You got to think, and I don't know this to be the case, but sort of the acacias of Southern Africa, you know, they're very similar looking to a mesquite. So I imagine they are related. And if not, obviously no, those, you're right. Those acacias are native to South Africa and it's yeah. the same family. Yeah on this most recent trip, cause I'd never been there in February, which is their summer. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we typically Americans go to Africa to hunt during our oh. summer, which is their winter. Yep. But so the, um, the cactus, what is it? Why am I drawing a blank? It's native to here in Texas. Prickly pear. Fri prickly pear. Yes. Sorry. Prickly pear was in season. I said, we have these back home in South Texas and certainly Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, what variation of this, you know, what is this? They're like, oh no, yeah, this is from Texas. <laughs> this yeah. was brought here. This was brought to South Africa in like yeah. the seventies. And oh dude, they love it. They I mean they eat the crap out of it. Every oh, meal they yeah. were serving it up. So but uh going back to the actual hunt itself, um, as we're running out of time, just walk yeah. us through that that day. Um, you know, you got on this bull. Uh, how did it, how did the hunt play out? Well, Jeremy was just building me up ethically, uh, which I appreciate. But the actual, the actual harvest was a complete rodeo. Uh, yeah. And honestly, I, I would say I'm 
not completely proud of how it played out, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it is what it is to some degree. I'm happy to tell you the story, but basically we had ultimately kind of figured out that these orcs were moving from, it wasn't actually the missile range. It was actually, a, I believe USDA, Jeremy grazing, mm-hmm. experimental grazing range. So mm-hmm. I, I suppose kind of an agricultural research station type situation, but there was a pile of them there. Um, you know, uh, uh, quite a pile. And, and they, we had noticed after four or five days of watching and sort of waiting that some of them were, were kind of ducking this fence right before dark and beelining it for what we assume or what, what Jeremy, I think correctly assumed was a water tank at sort of a ranch, a little ranch house, a couple miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, or for whatever they were doing, there were certainly orcs lots of orcs sort of traveling this corridor that was a couple hundred watt, a couple hundred uh, yards wide, basically in seemingly evenings, maybe the mornings, whatever. So we kind of basically I channeled, we channeled my Eastern whitetail roots um, and sort of started to try and ambush them to some degree. One night I spent kind of up on this, the edge of a dirt tank or a mining shaft or something that got you six feet above basically the brush, just kind of waiting on an opening for Oryx. And that didn't actually play out. And then another night we saw some Oryx on the night we, we connected. Finally, we saw some Oryx sort of make a move for this fence. And I was already in there basically. Um, and the amazing thing about this brush is Jeremy ultimately said I was what, like a hundred yards or less from them as they came by me oh, or wow. one came by me and I, I could see him and the Oryx in almost the ex- you know, exact same field of view through my spotter. And yeah. to me, it, you know, it looked like they were right on top of each other, but going back to how okay. different that we were. landscape is, yeah. they, yeah. they could have been, they could have also been, you know, 200 yards away. Yeah. So this thing slipped by me and we knew that they were just, we knew that they were traveling based on their tracks, you know, by traveling, I mean, they're just walking. They weren't browsing their way to this tank. They were straight shotting. So to some degree, once it had gotten sort of past me, I knew it was already kind of a losing battle, right? It was getting, it was heading directly away from me. Uh, and I probably, I don't know how much light I had, maybe 20 minutes, 15 minutes, it was getting dark. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of thought to myself, we got to make something happen here and just started traveling in that direction at a walk, you know, not stalking at all anymore. And somehow caught a, the thing's face, um, in the brush and, and I don't really know what the situation was because in my head it was sort of looking my way but didn't seem to see me and then turned and walked back on this you know in this general direction going to wherever it was going straight away from me and so then I'd seen it and you know now there's 10 minutes of light or whatever and I keep boogieing straight after it again trying to make something happen and that's kind of what what did happen it blew up and galloped straight away from me um, I started running full on, um, <laughs> sprinting after this Oryx and it did stop and do sort of that mule deer look back basically. And I stopped expecting it to blow up and keep running and waited a second, didn't run, got my pack off. It didn't run, got down to my knee and got the gun on the top of the shooting sticks, if this makes sense, but they were attached to my pack. So they weren't extended. They were sort of just sticking up by three feet or whatever from the pack, which was a debatable rest. I would say, (laughs) you know, kind of like shooting off your pack, but higher and wobblier. 
Right. Um, and they were effectively a monopod at that point, not a bipod. Um, uh-huh. Got the gun down, you know, still the thing hadn't run. I'm still expecting to turn and run at any moment because that's, that's all they had done all week um, uh, or two weeks almost at that point. And so I, now I get the reticle on the Oryx and the reticle is like doing this because I just sprinted and I'm now on a monopod. Right. And the reticle's bouncing. I'm expecting the thing to run and to make an excuse for myself, which is, is not, is, doesn't justify it perhaps, but I'm thinking to myself how, you know, all week, Jeremy and Ray kind of said, it's going to happen quick. You know, you kind of got to be ready to shoot these things. And kind of feeling like I had to some degree not capitalized on those opportunities through the week. You know, I think a, a quicker shot, you know, someone like Jeremy perhaps might have been able to get a shot off at some of these Oryx that we had just barely missed. You know, we'd gotten the gun up on the tripod, safety off, and there they go. So definitely was rushing in my head and rushed the shot is the long and short of it. Um, didn't steady my shot. You know, hard to say if I had taken five more seconds to steady the shot with the orcs have been there. Maybe I don't maybe know. Not, yeah. But again, I do. Uh, if I really put myself to it, I think it was the wrong choice to shoot, honestly, mm-hmm. um, because I don't. I wasn't settled. The shot wasn't there. Well, it um, takes a lot to say that. You know, I think. Yeah. You know, a lot of hunters would just be like, "I just got to get a bullet in it." You know. Which, well. <laughs> You know, and again, you know, if you're talking to a whitetail hunter in Vermont, right, a, a snow tracker, and they're all offhand shots, and they're all right. looking over their shoulder, they probably wouldn't sweat it, obviously. But that's that's just not that's not how I've been, how I've I guess come up hunting. I'll put it this way: the first time I hunted in Africa, I heard one of the PHs say, "Just get a bullet in it. We'll find it. Totally. We, we have dogs. Totally. It's okay." I'm like, "What did you say? Yeah. Like, this is so foreign to me." <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I with the caveat of like with feral hogs, okay, sure, sure. You, we're just getting a bullet in it, but anything else, it's like one shot, one kill. That's what I'm taught. Yeah, They're telling me just shoot it wherever. We don't care. We'll find it. You'll shoot it again. Oh, like, okay. but this is not you know, obviously not the way you were taught, and well, most hunters just... probably not. You know, where, where I sort of came to myself as a rifle hunter was in Idaho. And, you know, it's a lot of sort of shooting bags and prone and the windage and this, that, and the other. Right. It's very precise, um, very sniper-esque. And this was not that. This yeah. was crosshairs are jumping. It where was. Did you, where did you hit it? It was, uh, uh, well, basically, in retrospect, I, and Jeremy, correct me here, it was sort of lowish and behind the shoulder. On an any other North American ungulate, it would have been, it would have been a solid shot. Uh-huh. You know, or oryx, their vitals tend to be different than the normal species we're, you know, we're used to shooting. So, mm. you know, it's, you know, in, in Ford's defense, he laid a, he laid a good shot. Like any other animal that would have absolutely the African uh, animals ex- expired farther forward. No. It's, it was, they're forward and they're up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the idea was, is to, you know, really hit that shoulder, you know, be a little up on that shoulder. And, uh, you know, forward was just a little bit back it, you know, from any other species, it would have looked like a heart shot. So, you know, in his defense, there's a lot going on there and he, there could have been a lot worse shot. So I think he did a pretty good job there. So Ford, what happened after that? Well, in any case, I, I did squeeze the shot off. The animal looked hit, I would say. Jeremy even said from miles away he heard a smack. Because, um, hell, you were probably three miles away, right? Yeah, I was three miles away with a steady breeze. And, uh, 
you know, I was laying down that glass cause I'd seen that Oryx disappear, you know, in the same field of view with, with Ford. So at that point, when you lose both the Oryx and your buddy, you're kind of just, you know, all ears and, and kind of waiting to listen. And sure enough, I heard, a I heard some of a, uh, you know, a very faint thump followed by what sounded like uh, a muzzle blast. And so mm. immediately I text Ford and try to contact him. And I'm like, Hey, did you, did you shoot only, you know, for Ford to reach back out to me and tell me he, he in fact did. Yeah. So I shoot the thing looks hit, but takes off at a run, you know, a full run. So I run after it. Um, which I don't was probably not a good decision to some degree, but I'm thinking it'll stop again, which it did. So I, I basically chased it for a I couple. Th- I think hours. that there's like uh, that. I think it depends on the terrain. If there's thick brush, I would say, yeah, don't run after it. But if you can see it and you've got a visual on it, I, I don't think yeah. there's anything wrong with doing what you did for sure. Well, and so that's, that's kind of what happened. It was actually a bit of a clearing and open spot. So I was able to get up to it. It actually did stop again. And I was able to squeeze off an offhand shot that missed completely wide. Um, <laughs> and probably maybe shouldn't have even taken. Well, he's already hit at this know. point. So it is that's, now get a bullet in him. That, that was very much my thought is get another bullet in him. And I just, I full on missed offhand. Um, and I, I, I couldn't tell you the distance. Maybe it was 200 yards or what yeah. have you. Um, again, the first shot was about 200 yards. So yeah. I kind of fall apart in a pile basically on the ground. I'm like, I, I've just bungled this whole deal. You know, nine, eight, nine eight days worth of effort yeah. right here. It's just like, yeah. So I, 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 called, yeah. I called Jeremy just sort of despondent and he gave me some, encouragement and great advice which was to backtrack myself you know follow my tracks back to the shot point so we could recreate that shot in the morning and that was absolutely critical and honestly only possible because of the environment you know in idaho and pine duff in in back east and oak leaves would have been hard to recreate that shot i would i would have thought um Mm -hmm. so i was able to get back mark my mark my shot placement and then kind of rendezvous a couple miles away with jeremy uh, in the UTV, um, you know, what followed was, a, a, a broken sleep night and a lot of self bashing as we've all, you know, all been through a lot Absolutely. of optimism from Jeremy, which, uh, was, that's the key. You got to have that buddy there to lift your spirits oh, when, when something like right. that happens. Totally. Totally. So bad dreams, the whole nine yards, get out there in the morning, um, kind of, you know, get behind the basically range finder, get Jeremy down range and kind of line up where this thing was standing. Um, I, I sort of ironically, despite how easy it is to track, there was sort of some tracks in the area. So it kind of took us a while to get on the correct track. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as stories go, I was, I was sort of ready to call a miss um, 20 or 30 or whatever, 45 minutes in maybe even and found blood um, which is, you know, both good and bad at that point, right? There's a right. chance you get this thing, but there's also a chance you wounded this thing horribly. Mm-hmm. Um, so hearts both singing and, you know, and dropping at that point. And we're able to get on that thing. And in that environment, again, you could track it pretty quick because you're looking, it's kind of step, step, step in the sand, blood, blood, blood. Um, we really, we could move pretty quickly on that thing. You know, at points, other works would cross and we'd have to sort of suss it out. But um, we moved pretty quick, uh, and tracked for probably about a mile, I'd say, Jeremy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and found a couple what appeared to be bedish spots or places where it had kind of milled around and bled quite a bit. 
um, you know, kind of the pools that you get in that, in that way. So, you know, things are maybe starting to look up. We're finding a fair amount of blood. Um, it's bleeding pretty consistently. There's a couple spots where it stopped and either coughed or bled from the side or whatever, whatever. And then we start hitting shiny blood on the ground and, and the heart sinks again uh, because this thing's alive and has been on this track pretty recently. Yeah. Um, so really, even in my head, the white tailor is starting to think like, should we pull out? Should we give it more time? Whatever, whatever. And, and I haven't even really, I guess, vocalized that. I'm just sort of thinking through it in, the, in a dark mood as we're continuing to track. And I heard a snort, I would describe it as. There's sort of an exhalation that, Cable, to your point, reminded me a bit of wildebeest snort. Yeah. That sort of, and this thing stands up somewhere. I, in retrospect, I don't even really remember where it was. And Jeremy and I kind of quickly get up on one of these small dunes um, and are able to see the thing standing broadside looking at us at, what do you think, Jeremy, 75 yards or 50 yards or somewhere in there? When, when he first busted out of there, it sure looked like he ran a hell of a lot farther. But when we got on that mound, he was he was damn near right in front of us, 70, 75 yeah. yards, I would say. And so once again, I missed this thing offhand, um, above him in my head at least. Um, Jeremy's like, shoot it, shoot it. And I'm like, oh, I'm not that great an offhand shot. And, and in fact, <laughs> two miss completely. And <laughs> – Luckily, by that point, Jeremy has kind of pushed the sticks under me um, and it's running away. And I managed to sort of clip it um, in uh, what is commonly referred, no insults to your people cable, but to it uh, as a Texas heart shot, I believe. Right up the butt. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Below it's, I think maybe above its tail slightly. And, and uh -huh. we were a little elevated. Uh, um, so it rolled over, uh, I think, from that shot. Uh, and was sort of kicking around on the ground. And I, for better or for worse, shot it again uh, for better. at that point. Maybe for better, except for the right, thing. right I, thing to do. I hit it square in the rear quarter as it was sort of flailing around, which I'm sure didn't kill it and did blow up a chunk of meat. So that was a little unfortunate. But thing goes down and, um, and we, you know, in keeping with sort of the myth, the mythology and the experiences of Oryx, we stayed on it in the scope for 15 or 20 minutes, basically, uh, making sure it was dead and then slowly approached and approached, you know, in sort of a tactical manner, basically, right. with the gun on the thing, just because, I mean, Jeremy can tell stories, but I just heard repeatedly that they will lie on the ground, look completely dead, and as, you know, upon approach or poking or whatever, kick their feet and just run to oblivion after that. So we were very cautious on the approach. And obviously the thing had survived in retrospect for, you know, 12 hours with a bullet, um, I guess not in its boiler room, but like right up in there, you know, <laughs> not, a, not a glancing blow for sure. So, you know, very tough animals. Uh, and we were very cautious on the approach, but at that point it was, it had expired fully, I would say. Okay. You always like to get the happy ending on these roller coasters that yeah. we all experience as hunters. Uh, and we've all had it go both ways. You know, yeah. there were things yeah. you said you would have done differently. Um, yeah. I think you just live and learn. That's the only way to really experience it is to be there in the moment. Uh, I screwed it up this time. Okay. Next time I'm going to do it, do it the opposite way. So yeah. anyway, you, you got it done on the ninth day. 
Um, yeah. Have you had a, had a chance to eat any of the uh, orcs? Yeah, we, we have. I had some backstrap here uh, a couple days ago. Uh, we did some kebabs uh, and, and I mean, so far delicious. I, I would, you know, it seems pretty mild and that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of how it's been described. I, I would call, you know, so far I would call it similar maybe to a, you know, an Eastern whitetail an Agland whitetail or, or maybe an elk even. Um, but I got to, you know, I got to dig into it a bit. That was just backstrap and that was just backstrap on the grill, you know, kind of a not descriptive way of cooking it to some degree, but uh, it was, it was very tasty and very fortunate, feeling very fortunate to even have the thing after that rodeo. But I will say, I mean, the theme, I feel like of the hunt was sort of persistence. If I had to, yeah. if I had to draw it up and, and that applied to, you know, the hunt day to day and it applied to the track job for sure. And, you know, to your point, Cable, it's it's funny. The ratio of animals I've actually lost to those sleepless nights is actually pretty good. I've really only lost one animal in my life. And, and it, as hopeless as it seems in that situation, it does seem if you stay on that track, if you keep your nose down, you often find the critter. Mm-hmm. And luckily, that was the case. Yeah. Well, congratulations, man. And uh now the uh, the orcs tags are going to get even harder to draw because people <laughs> listening to this are going to be like, uh, I want to yeah. do that. I want to hunt African animals in an African environment oh. that's really in New Mexico. Like, you know, who doesn't want to do that? Absolutely. That, and, and that's really what drew, drew me to Sorry, Jeremy. It. I know you haven't drawn one in 10 years, but. <laughs> well, it's, you know, yeah. I got used to it. So another another 10 or 20 ain't going to hurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But when I draw mine, I'll call Jeremy to, to help me. Well, and I would say. To be clear, Cable, you know, the animal was killed because Jeremy was there, right? I mean, I I don't think I would have come close to filling a tag if, if Jeremy hadn't been around to, to lead the blind squirrel towards a nut proverbially <laughs> throughout the hunt. So I, I, I owe everything to him and, you know, can't thank him enough for basically, you know, not basically coming out and meeting a stranger in the desert and then proceeding to hunt with said stranger for nine days you yeah. know um just uh very selfless and, and i'm ingratiated to you uh jeremy forever i would say oh i well, yeah I, I appreciate that you know you you hunted hard man you stayed persistent i think you you define the hunt very well by you know labeling it as persistence because that's that's what it is man you know coming to a, a an area where you've never hunted before and having the opportunity to hunt with somebody you know i don't know that country the best i'm by no means a, a expert or a hunter but i've been you know uh, i've benefited and i've been grateful enough to have some time invested in that landscape to to learn what i do know and uh you know just uh you know the fact that you're willing to kind of take it on solo for the most part you know obviously i i most definitely respect that. And, uh, you know, I don't like leaving people hanging too. So when, you know, understanding folks, you know, you were in it for the long haul and, uh, you know, other folks that joined had to, had to jet back to their, their, you know, professional or personal responsibilities. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to, uh, you know, work and have that kind of flexibility out in the field. So there were a lot of times I was working while I was glassing and, uh, you know, that just worked out. And it's a, it's a team effort. Everyone contributes and it makes, it makes nine days in the desert seem a lot less. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the last bit of color I might add cable is, you know, Jeremy had to leave that day, the ninth day. Um, and I, ha- I was going to have to leave 
I think the following day, probably I, I could have called Bridget and pleaded and maybe got <laughs> a couple more days, but um, I had some, I really had to be at work the following Monday and it was a two day drive to get down there from Idaho. So we were very much in the fourth quarter. Yeah. Uh, anyway, you cut it that way and, and uh, could, could hardly believe how it turned out. It was well, pretty great. I think we'll wrap it up with this. Um, just my observation from y'all's story. I mean, that's what's so great about the hunting community. Uh, you can meet a total stranger that's willing to drop what they're doing to help you out, but they, they do it for the love of the hunt first and foremost, right? Mm -hmm. uh, cause they want to be there cause that's who we are and what we do. We're hunters and, uh, just to hell to be able to go and tag along. You don't, you don't know how long it's going to take, uh, but you're there for nine days with a guy that, that now you're friends. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what's that's right. cool about, about, uh, us as hunters uh, always willing to help out a buddy uh, yeah i'm just hoping i get a call from jeremy saying you're next year so i can go back <laughs> oh i sure hope so right on well hey guys thank you so much for the time congrats on the orcs um certainly new mexico the land of enchantment uh lots of opportunity for um for not only elk mule deer pronghorn all that cool stuff um but also orcs and uh, ibex People just uh, think about that when you're applying for uh, for tags for next year. So I think maybe don't go. maybe don't do it for a few years. You know, give me, <laughs> get, get, give me a fighting chance at least. <laughs> right on. Well, hey guys, thanks again. Y'all have a great day. Good luck thanks, in the Cable. turkey woods. Thanks, Cable. Take care, Ford. All right, there they go. Ford Van Fossen, uh, content and conservation manager for First Light, and Jeremy Romero of the National wildlife federation great stuff there too uh, awesome guys and uh, man i'd love to share a camp with either one of them that segment of the presentation was brought to you by lone star ag credit you know land is the one thing they're not making any more of but if you're like me you'd love to have some of it right whether that's for hunting fishing running cattle or just to get the hell out of the big city so if you're ready to uh, take that next step, Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own slice of paradise for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. Unfortunately, man, we've gone overtime today. We got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to Ford and Jeremy. Thanks to you guys for being a part of today's presentation. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Until next time. I'm Cable Smith saying thanks for tuning in to SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show, and y'all have a great week in the outdoors. I know me, king of the road. I know every engineer on every train, all of their children and all of their names.